You are tuned in to episode 11 of Sound Science on Dub Lab Radio with me, your host, Dr. Yuande Pierce. On the show, I talk about science and music with help from those in the know while playing tunes. On this month's episode, Sound and the Brain, I want to talk about three areas of sound and music through the lens of neuroscience and psychology. I'll also be talking to my very special guest, Slow Like Woe, whose self-taught understanding of the science of sound is integral to the creation and creation of the music that she makes and plays. So the first thing that I'm going to talk about is sound perception, which is how the brain perceives sound. So sound is a vibration that propagates through the air as a wave of pressure that you can hear. By definition then, sound is like the reception of these waves by our ears and the perception of these waves by the brain. And these waves of pressure can also be described as frequencies and these frequencies can be low or they can be high. So sound is captured by the fleshy part of the ear, which is called the pina, but we'll just call it the fleshy part of the ear. And it's shaped the way that it is because it allows sound to be funneled down into the auditory canal to the eardrum, which starts to vibrate. Now this causes three little bones to vibrate and they're called the malleus, the incus and the stapes. And they vibrate and then in turn, a structure that looks a little bit like an oval window, which is attached to um, another structure that looks like a snail called the cochlea, will then in turn um, also vibrate. Now the snail looking structure or the cochlea contains a fluid which is really key because this fluid gets pushed all the way around the cochlea in one direction. Then when it gets to the end, the fluid meets another circular window, which gets pushed out a little bit. So if you unroll the cochlea, like let's say, since we're in LA, a yoga mat, you would see the hair cells laid out from a base, which is the outermost part, to an apex, the innermost part. Hairs along the cochlea are stimulated by different frequencies. So hair cells at the base of the cochlea are activated by a very high frequency, about 1,600 hertz, and hair cells at the apex of the cochlea are activated by low frequency sounds, about 25 hertz. What's really interesting is that this frequency map is mirrored in different parts of the auditory cortex, which means different parts of the auditory cortex hear different sounds. So once the auditory cortex is activated, signals can then be sent out to all over the brain to areas involved in perception, in memory, emotion, and areas involved in generating a response such as our motor cortex, when we decide that we can't resist bopping our heads or breaking into that faithful two-step. So I've spoken a bit about sound perception and now I want to talk about the impact of sounds and music on psychology. So if you're a regular listener of the show, then you would have heard me talk about something called a Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Scanner, or for short, an fMRI. Um, This is a really incredible tool that has been pivotal to understanding how the brain reacts to external stimuli, in this case, sound and music. 
So it measures brain activity by detecting changes in blood flow, which appears as different parts of the brain lighting up. And that gives us an understanding of which structures in the brain are responsible for different functions. So using this technology, while asking participants to take part in different activities, numerous studies have been able to show that listening to sounds and music can modulate brain activity in regions of the brain that make up a system called the limbic system, which is a pretty elusive system. Some of you may have heard of this system before, um, but for those who haven't, it's a structure in the brain that plays a crucial role in the initiation, generation, maintenance, and modulation of emotions. So it's where our emotions sit. So to put the limbic system in context, I'm gonna do a quick brain anatomy 101. Um, so the brain can be divided into five core parts. The frontal lobe, which controls movement, problem solving and speech production. The temporal lobe, which is responsible for hearing, language, um, comprehension and memory. Then you've got the parietal lobe, which is involved in touch, perception and body orientation. And the occipital lobe, which allows us to see and interpret what we're seeing. And then there's the brainstem and the cerebellum, and they're involved in involuntary movements and balance and coordination respectively. So I'm now gonna talk about a pretty interesting study that was carried out in 2006 by a group at the Max Planck Institute. So they wanted to investigate brain responses to joyful dance tunes in contrast to dissonant versions of those tunes. So they define the joyful tune as a pleasant experience and then the dissonant version as an unpleasant experience. And when they looked at the fMRI results, what they saw were differences in brain activity when participants listened to the pleasant music and when they listened to the unpleasant music. So the pleasant music activated a structure in the temporal lobe which contains the auditory cortex and also areas of the frontal cortex which are associated with planning complex cognitive behaviour, personality expression, decision-making and moderating social behavior and also a part of the frontal cortex which is associated with the limbic system. Now when participants listened to distorted versions of the music they saw activity in the hippocampus which is a structure involved in memory and also the temporal poles of the temporal lobe which is involved in hearing and interestingly the amygdala which is involved in emotional processing and which is often associated with um, the fight or flight response. So the thing is science doesn't give you perfect answers and fMRI studies don't always agree. So another way to work out what's going on is to look at lesion studies where particular brain structures are actually damaged or missing entirely. So in 2005, a study from the University of Montreal showed that patients missing their amygdala following surgical removal of their medial temporal lobe were unable to recognize fearful music. So imagine you're listening to like a John Carpenter soundtrack. That's kind of scary. That would mean that the person listening to that music actually wouldn't have those emotions. They wouldn't associate that with fear. So in a horror movie, how music is used to signal that something scary is about to happen. Someone missing that part of their brain wouldn't have a clue, wouldn't have that sort of emotional response. In patients missing just the left part of their amygdala though, and the left part of a structure called the insula, 
they experience selective loss of intensely pleasurable experiences, such as chills during music listening. So, you know, when you listen to music and you get like chills, unfortunately, these people were unable to experience that. As well as trying to work out where music has an effect on the brain, scientists have also begun to focus on the chemical mechanisms involved in musical pleasure. Neurons in the brain connect to one another via small gap junctions called synapses, which I've described before. When an electrical signal gets to the end of one neuron, chemical messengers called neurotransmitters are released, which travel across the gap to the next neuron, causing the electrical signal to be passed on. So one neurotransmitter that you will no doubt have heard of before is dopamine and I speak about it a lot on the show because music is very pleasurable and dopamine is a neurotransmitter associated with um, experiencing pleasure. So it'll just keep coming up and up and up. In a study published in Nature Neuroscience, which to give you a bit of context is a really big deal scientific journal because it has a really high impact factor. So the study I'm about to describe is kind of a big deal. They use fMRI to investigate the biological mechanisms involved in musical pleasure by concentrating on the dopaminergic system. And what they found was that intense pleasure in response to music can lead to dopamine release in distinct anatomical areas. So this was important because they were able to offer a mechanism for how musical pleasure is experienced and actually locate it to a structure within the brain. So for example, they found that dopamine is released in an area of the brain called the chordate, which is associated with anticipation of reward, like hearing a house track build, and also an area of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which is involved more in the experience of peak emotional pleasure, for example, like when the beat drops focus a lot on studies involving music, I'm going to touch on non-musical sound or rather sound wave frequencies themselves. One area of interest when it comes to sound in the brain is auditory beat stimulation as a tool for modulating cognition, reducing anxiety levels as well as enhancing mood states. Auditory beat stimulation includes monaural and binaural beats. So monaural beats and binaural beats are generated when sound waves of neighboring frequencies and stable amplitudes are presented to either both ears simultaneously, monaural, or to each ear separately, binaural. The main difference between the two is that composite monaural beats interact peripherally in the ear while monaural beats interact centrally in the brain. So while monaural beats can be perceived in one or both ears, binaural beats need the combined action of both. There have been quite a lot of studies about the application of, let's shorten it to ABS, to manipulate cognitive processes or mood modulation. However, like so much of science, there have been very contradictory results, especially for binaural beats. So I'm going to just use a couple of examples to share with you some of the studies that are being done around this kind of research. So one study by a group in Portland tested verbal memory by getting participants to repeat a list of 15 unrelated words over several different trials. When participants were exposed to binaural beat stimulation at seven hertz for a single 30 minute session, they found that immediate verbal memory was reduced compared to controls. 
However, another group in Madrid just a year later showed that the application of 5 Hz binaural beat stimulation for 15 minutes twice a day for 15 days resulted in a significant increase in the number of words remembered post-stimulation. So this really suggests that the length and frequency of exposure is key in the application of binaural beat stimulation in enhancing memory. Right, so we're about halfway through the show. I just want to remind you that my very special guest this month is Slow Like Woe, who is an incredible woman. I'm super excited to speak to her. But before that interview, I'm going to talk about the impact of sound and music on physiology. So over the last decade, much of the research has been centered on the psychological and neurological benefits of sound and music. But in recent years, scientists have begun to focus not just on measuring the effect of music on neurotransmitters in the brain, but also other biological chemicals such as hormones, cytokines, um, which are kind of signaling molecules secreted from immune cells, lymphocytes or white blood cells, and immunoglobulins, which are antibodies in our immune system. So what they're beginning to see is that music impacts our stress pathways, and this might link music to an immune response. So now I just want to end on what we know about some of the physiological effects of sound and music, which I think is less well-trodden, but definitely a fascinating area of research. So 40 years of research has given rise to a field called psychoneuroimmunology, which is the study of the interaction between psychological processes and the nervous and immune systems. So to understand how music can impact our immune system, we really have to appreciate the effects of music on stress first. Evidence of music as stress relief exists from as far back as 4000 BC. So many of us are already aware of this without thinking much about the science, and we incorporate this intuitive knowledge into our daily lives. However, science is beginning to provide some real answers that I want to share with you. The hypothalamic pituitary axis, or the HPA, is a complex set of direct influences and feedback interactions between three important structures, the hypothalamus and the pituitary glands in the brain, and the adrenal glands on top of the kidneys. And these structures control reactions to stress and then in turn regulate many body processes, including digestion, the immune system, emotions, sexuality, and also energy stores and expenditure. And they do this by secreting specific hormones. One hormone, cortisol, is released from the adrenal glands in response to an increase in another hormone called adrenocorticotropic hormone. And that's released from the pituitary gland. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that relaxing music, especially when you choose the music yourself, reduces cortisol levels. So part of the action of cortisol during the stress response is that cortisol actually suppresses the immune system. So think about this. If you can conceive that relaxing music lowers cortisol levels, can you also imagine that it might boost the immune system? That's what you would think, right? However, this is where science is imperfect. From the studies that are available, it appears that music certainly does have an effect on our immune system, but the type of music in terms of it being relaxing or stimulating has actually given rise to conflicting results because of how these parameters are defined. 
I'm so excited to introduce my next guest, Tori Bradley, aka Slow Like Woe. This is the interview that I did with her last week about her work creating music, being a producer, uh, creating music as a DJ, her interest in science and sound and how she brings the two together as an artist. Where was the turning point for you that took you off the dance floor and then behind the actual decks to be a DJ and to share music with other people? I think I was working in music. I was working as an executive assistant for Kelly Rowland. I learned a lot. I was exposed to so many different producers and, you know, different artists and their processes and her process. And something kind of in my soul ignited, you know what I mean? It was like, I I need to get back Mm -hmm. to creating music, you know, and I want to be in these spaces and I want to kind of be the one who's directing the sound. And we would always go and host parties at clubs and stuff like that. And I was like, I love what DJs are doing. Like, I really didn't know that side of stuff because I, Mm -hmm. I knew that some producers DJ and some DJs produce but not not everyone you know mm-hmm. yeah. and so when I saved up enough money I went and got some a controller a Serato Pioneer controller and just dove into it took a couple private lessons at Scratch Academy and I was like this is amazing you know it wasn't totally what I wanted to do I probably would have went more of the producing route um, since I've played so many instruments mm-hmm. you know and but I I fell in love with it and I was like this is a great way to be immersed in the culture and around so many people that are listening to music. It's a great way to uh, introduce people to my music when it's done. And I just love the energy of the energy exchange between the DJ and the dance floor. Do you stick to a particular genre? Well, right now I have a residency at Mama Lion um, every Wednesday night and it's a soul funk party, like rare grooves, strictly 60s and 70s soul and funk. And Isn't that awesome? Yeah, I know. I'm so... (laughs) I want to come to one. You have to, yes. I'll be there tomorrow night. I fly in and I'm going straight to my gig. (laughs) It's so much fun and I love opportunities like that because I do play kind of like a wider range of genres um, personally Mm -hmm. when I'm like digging for music, but I love this this night and this opportunity to really dig into those two genres of music because I'm highly inspired by those. I grew up on soul and, and funk music, so... Being able to just like dig deep and then go into soul and funk from other countries, like it's just such a wildly deep world. And I think that's another reason that I love music so much and being able to select songs, uh, mash things up or play songs that you wouldn't have expected me to play next, but it works with the song before it. You know what I mean? Whether it's the drum patterns that sync up or it's like a flute playing in the background or if it's, you know, a song that sampled the one before it. It's just such a cool experience. So let's move on to the science. So on this episode of Sound Science, I've been talking about sound perception, the impact of sound and music on psychology, and also the impact of sound and music on physiology, and what happens in the brain when you feel the vibrations of sound, not just hear it. So were you interested in science at school, or is this something that you've become more interested in as you've as you've moved through life? I think I've always been interested in science and for sure and how things work and breaking them apart and breaking them down into simple small pieces and then putting them all back together again and just understanding the ins and outs of the world around us for sure. When did you first start becoming interested specifically in sound frequencies and vibrations? Mm, I think I would say 2015 I went home to Arizona 
from working and traveling and all of that. I just kind of needed a break. I went home for uh -huh. about six months and wasn't working, was just kind of like meditating in the backyard at my mom's house and just, you know, soaking up the sun and trying to get back to the root of things and why I had moved to LA and what I wanted to do for myself and my career. And I started watching Ancient Aliens on Netflix and what's What's the one with, he does so many things now. Uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I think. Staple, <laughs> for sure. Yes, yep. Watched a lot of his stuff, started getting into quantum physics and just diving into music because I didn't have to be anywhere. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to set songs and playlists together for anyone except myself. And I came across, um, came across Sofegio frequencies and tuning forks and just that whole world of how music has been used to heal people and how you know certain instruments carry you know stronger frequencies or just like you know live instrumentation and music how that affects our bodies and record players and the crystal and how that even works so just yeah 2015 for sure I, do I dove deep into all of it. I'm also fascinated in that research, the way that funding works. A lot of the research that is funded is for treatments of different neurological disorders specifically, and not a lot of research on how you can apply those things in wellness, I guess, so in, in the absence of clinical conditions that have be, been diagnosed. I just wondered about how you go about researching the science for your work or whether it is more intuitive for you. Like you said, you did a deep dive. How have you found the information that you come to? I, I guess I would say there's so many different routes that I take. I did sign up for some online classes. I took um, a class uh, called Music as Biology from Duke University. And oh, nice. that, yeah, that was incredible. It blew my mind. It showed me how we hear things and that we kind of actually feel it. And it's like mm -hmm. an electrical signal that goes through our bodies. And that was fascinating. So I started searching for more online classes that were not specifically in the realm of like music, technicality and business and stuff like that. But like you said, how it affects our bodies and the healing properties of it. And then just searching terms on my own, just because there, there were courses that were pretty difficult and stuff that I didn't understand wow. that I wanted to understand more, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So doing my own research outside of the course so that I can fully understand the course and Absolutely. still just kind of explore what it is that I even wanted to do because I knew could go to school for music, but I wasn't totally sure that I knew what I wanted to do in music. So all right. of this research has kind of just led me, you know, one interview or one article will lead me to something else. It'll drop a term in there that I haven't come across before. So I'll look that up and then I'm like, oh, this is interesting. You know, how, who, who does this type of work? Who, what is psychoacoustics and how do they use that in music and shows? Right. And, you know, it's been, it's been crazy. I think I'm just a, a weirdo who just is <laughs> obsessed with, <laughs> obsessed with researching and knowing things. Having that curiosity is so important within and outside of science. That's why I was interested in your process for how you are researching this, because I know that you recently featured in a show where you make installations, and the last one was about the effect of sound on water, which visually sounded amazing. Where did the idea for that piece come from? The 
this. I did um, launch a sound installation series called Seeing Sounds. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. basically the theme of it is just exploring the, co the connection between sound vibration and physical reality. And I think I came across a video, a cymatics video, where they just mm -hmm. hooked up a bunch of different instruments to different, whether it was water or whether it was fire, whether it was these plates with salt or sand on them. And I loved the fact that you could see the sound and see that it changed the pattern of things. And you know what I mean? It, it had an imprint in there and that's what it's doing to our bodies. I knew and understood that that's what's happening inside our bodies, but I knew that the majority mm -hmm. of people don't realize that that's what's happening in our bodies. So I think that was the reason for the first installation. I kind of just wanted to dive into that introduction of how, or just the fact that music affects us physically so that I could I trail into the other installations later on. I was really bummed that I missed it because I really think that it does communicate that relationship really powerfully. I'd like to hear about the other installations. How is this series going to unfold? I have written out a couple different ideas as far as the next couple installations, but I'm still trying to kind of visualize the next one, but I think the next one's gonna involve plants and nature. And I've seen a couple experiments in, I guess you could call them installations too, that people have done mm -hmm. where they've hooked up sensors and things to plants and you know, yeah. play around yeah. with that. Mm -hmm. And I think that's pretty awesome. And so I want it to be more of a performance piece, but involving mm -hmm. plants and nature so that people can understand that we're very much alike and we're very much connected to the things that are around us. So if anyone wants to know more about you, um, where would they go? Would they go to your website um, and Instagram? Yes, my website, slowlikewo.com or my Instagram, which is also slowlikewo. Those would be the two main places that you'll find everything that I'm doing. Doing. Thank you so much for chatting with me on Sound Sciences Month. That was super interesting and really insightful and I'm really excited to come to your night and also see your installations. Thank you so much for having me. This was amazing and I hope to talk to you again soon. So we've come to the end of the show. That's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in to Sound Science on Dub Lab Radio this month. As you may have noticed, this is the fourth Monday of the month or the final Monday of the month um, the show has moved so it's no longer the third Monday of the month it's now the final Monday or the last Monday of the month show notes are on the website www.soundsciencepodcast.com there's also a track listing there you can listen back to this episode or share it would be great if you shared by going to the Dub Lab archives um, it will be uploaded in a few days and this episode will also eventually be available as a podcast version in a few months. Right now, we are on episode eight for the love of music. So to listen to that podcast, you can go to iTunes and download it or wherever you get your podcasts. 